Well, first thing I have to say, of course, is hello, Alan McNish. <laughs> hello. You know, it's funny. I listen uh, on the podcast, and uh, I yeah, I do shout back in the car or when I'm running hello to everybody. So hello. Right, as as we like to do, let's let's wind back a whole year. So it's a week before Le Mans, two thousand and eight. Did you actually think you had any chance of winning? I knew it'd be very tough. I always thought we had a chance of winning because I felt we were reliable, and uh, we had some developments onto the car that made it more agile and a bit more raceable. Uh, the other factor was that the weather was going to be a bit inclement, which we saw in the test day. We were quick in the wet and Persia weren't, but it was always going to be a tough task and we, we kind of realised and had to set our stall out in a very aggressive manner that basically we had to run flat out in the kind of hope, to some extent, if they tripped up for whatever reason, we were there. But if we took anything bar 100% out attack mode, we weren't going to be anywhere near them or pressure them or anything else, and they would have an easy run to the flag. So it was a case of nipping at their heels all the time, which worked, but it was also, I think, a a storyline of 2008 where we were not necessarily the fastest car over a lap, but we were good in racing environments, and Le Mans certainly proved that. I mean, how much of a shock was it when they, I think it was at 318, they didn't qualifying and they would look like they were playing with it? I mean, at that point, you think, ah. That wasn't a shock. What was a shock was when they did the time in the test day. Because uh, at that point, I just thought that was downright rude of them. You know, it was, it was immoral to be able to do that lap time when we were struggling around at 325s at the time. And... Uh, you know, they were significantly quicker. But we knew that. If you look back to Barcelona, the session before qualifying in the LMS Championship, the first round, uh, I was, I think, three, four tenths off them. And I was thinking, yeah, OK, we've got the fuel down, we'll do a wee bit at the front, and uh, nah, nah, new tyres. You know, I think I'll have a good go at these guys. Maybe a front row, and they were, I think, 1.3 seconds ahead. And then if you take the length of Barcelona and you multiply it out, then it roughly is five seconds round them all. So it wasn't a major surprise, but it was a pretty big disappointment when they actually did it. So wind on 24 hours from the start of the race, and you actually won the event. I mean, how did that compare with winning 10 years earlier with Porsche? Both were very similar in so far as that uh, 1998, we didn't have the fastest car. We had a reliable car. We had a raceable car. It was a bit wet in the middle of the night, and uh, we had to basically keep the pressure on the others to force them into a mistake or a failure. Uh, the difference was that uh, in 98, I just sort of fronted up at Le Mans. It was my second year, and the first year was a kind of wasn't really much to talk about anyway. And we sprayed champagne. Laurent, Stefan, and I stood in the podium, took some pictures, thought, yeah, this is very nice. We put our hands in clay, and we went back, and we celebrated a bit, got a bit drunk, and thought, we'll come back next year and do the same. In between times, there was quite a lot of Le Mans where... Finished on the podium, we led every one, uh, but never actually won the race outright. So I've seen the highs and lows of it in the 10 years interim. So when actually won and was standing on the podium, I breathed in this time much, much more. I appreciated it more because I realised the effort that I've put in in the interim period to come away with fantastic results, second and third. But to be honest with you, they weren't the big prize that I wanted. Which is the watch you're wearing. 
Yes, I know. I'm wearing it for a specific reason because I've actually been wearing another watch, uh, the championship watch from the American Le Mans series in 07 for the last couple of weeks. And uh, I thought it was appropriate coming up to Le Mans should uh, get the Daytona out because it, the watch means a lot to me, not because it's a Rolex Daytona 24. It's because of the effort that we all put into it to make sure that we won because it was definitely, and will go down in history, as one of the best Le Mans in the last... 20 years or something and uh, it also was one of the most perfect races that a racing team could ever achieve and I think from that point of view it's the the 24 hour period history that the watch represents more than necessarily the victory itself as in the final point of standing on the podium uh, I think that's why it's more of a personal thing for me. Now I know you're the, you're the king of politics and a very politically correct young man in many ways but something I think I've often wondered, and I know a lot of our listeners wonder, is, is why was your car so much quicker than the other two Audis? Last year at Le Mans. Um, king of politics, I'd just like to point out, I don't have a duck pond, and I have never charged the government for a toilet seat. And But I, they do clean your moat, don't they? <laughs> well, yes, the moat's called the Mediterranean, so I've got nothing to do with that. Um, there was... One thing that was always clear at Audi Sport, uh, which I have to say was one of the strong reasons that I was coming back after Formula One, was that you had a, a level playing field. And on the sports car side of it, you've got three cars, three engineering groups, and three sets of mechanics that can do the job and can win. And I think uh, last year, on our car we were clear in our strategy right from the outset. Technically, there was no difference. I kind of guarantee you that. Technically, there was zero between all of the cars and support behind them. But we were very clear in our strategy, and it wasn't the strategy that uh, certainly one of the other cars picked. They looked at something completely different in terms of their driver stinting and things like that. But we probably came out with the attitude that we didn't want to finish second. It was win it or bin it type of philosophy and uh, thankfully it was a winner. Talk about winning and binning, um, you did both at Petit Le Mans. Um, I have to say, I mean I've seen, been in Formula 1 for many years, it, I think if we get rid of the actual warm-up laps, it was probably the best drive I've ever seen by anybody ever, Alan, but what actually happened on that corner and how did you feel? Mm, thank you. Um, it wasn't my proudest moment. I was going to the grid and there's a, you come out of the pit lane at Petit, and it's a very steep uphill, and then there's a sort of little 90-degree right and a long left, and between the long left and the, the right down the hill, uh, there's a short straight, and I accelerated to it was about 48% throttle, and it lit up the rear wheels, and the first I knew, I promise you, Nick, the first I knew is when I hit the wall. I had no steering reaction or throttle or anything. It just went bang and I was in the wall and then bouncing down the wall. And I came to a stop uh, at the bottom of the hill and the engine was stopped. My foot was stuck against the bulkhead and I was, what the hell happened? I had just completely dazed off what had happened. And I thought the clutch had gone to the, the floor, but it was actually, I'd kicked the footrest off on the side of the chassis. In, so it was quite a violent accident. And then it was just a get home mode apologised profusely, kicked the hell out of the front of the truck and uh, let the guys get the job done of fixing it. Once I got it back, I knew we'd be back in the race because I knew that they would repair it. 
kind of not much doubt in my mind of that. Um, and also, once we were back in the race and there was a couple of laps, I knew we would get back onto the, the lead lap because I've had lead advantages before on sheer speed and they've gone away in America because of pace cars. So I knew it would come the other way around for us. Um, but when it came to the last you know, hour and a half of the race, after the final sort of yellows and everything else, and I could see there was uh, our sister car with Marco, and then there was the Peugeot, and then there was two Porsches and myself. Then I knew it was game on. That's when we were going to go for it, because uh, if not, I was probably going to get a big bill from Dr. O'Reilly for all the, all the accident damage. And obviously, as a Scott, that was the last thing you wanted. I mean, were you driving quicker because you were so angry with yourself? No. I can tell you, I, I, I think anybody that knows me knows that I, I've not really got anything bar the maximum that I can do. And uh, I wouldn't say I was driving any quicker, but I was very, very sure when I got into the lead that I wasn't going to give it up. But it was the one time of the year, I think, really, in a, an open piece of dry track when the Audi looked faster than the Peugeot. Yes, we were quite surprised turning up at Petite um, how two things happened one that in lap time it took Sarazan about 10 laps to defeat my pole time and he only did it by a hundredth or two hundredths and so in terms of performance the circuit suited us a bit better which was uh, that it was a momentum circuit it was less stop and start and with the momentum through the s's it uh, means that I think our chassis balance was less compromised with our weight distribution on the R10 and uh, the second thing was that they could run the same number of laps as us because we know that their engine is not as economical as ours. So they had obviously turned the power down. So they were playing with power. And uh, we saw that at different points in the races because suddenly they became quicker on the straights. And that was also something we saw at Sebring because one of their cars was similar speed to us on the straights and one of the cars was quicker on the straights. So they definitely were trying and testing something in Petite that they continued with in Sebring, and I'm sure they will in Le Mans. As I said, I thought that was a fantastic drive after the first lap. Where does that rank in your pantheon of performance? Unfortunately, I've seen some good drives in 08, uh, probably signified a lot, and I think Sebring 09 uh, was another one, but I've kept the helmet, and uh, it definitely was a special one. Uh, because, not because of the end of the race, not because of the fact we, you know, fought tooth and nail right at the end to to overtake, not just Marco and the other car, but the Peugeot as well, and then battled to victory, but, but probably because of the mess-up and the monumental mess-up that I made on the way to the grid, that I think that was the sort of counterbalance to the end of it. But it, I think all in all, as a, as a whole race, then it was one of the legends, in my mind. Have to agree. Now, you mentioned a couple of times already Sebring. Now, of course, in between Petit and Sebring, we said goodbye. Well, we thought we said goodbye at the R10, yeah. but then Colin turned up with a couple, yeah. sort of R10s. Um, I'm sure they'll be all right soon. Um, and uh, you picked up the uh, the new R15. Now, it's a very different concept car. Can you explain to me and the listeners what, what Audi's concept was about going with its second-generation diesel LMP1 car? Well... You've got to go back to the first race of the R10 TDI. It was the first ever purpose-built diesel racing engine, and so therefore the car around about it was the first time. We didn't really know 
We knew the torque would produce, but we didn't know the effect it would have. Michelin had no idea because they had never built a tyre to take that sort of torque level, load levels, everything else. And so it was a whole new philosophy. And I wouldn't say there's margin for error built in there, but there was certainly the unknown where could come up and bite us. And so it was a bit heavier than ideally we would like. Uh, we weren't able to control the weight and mass of the big V12 and the gearbox and everything else behind it to cope with all that power and torque uh, in the way that we wanted. So that compromised aerodynamics a little bit because of the bigger radiators for a diesel, which uh, then also had weight effect problems and, 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 and the list goes on. Through the course of its life, we were able to reduce some of the negative impacts of that. Um, but it became quite clear that it needed a new car to be able to achieve all the goals we wanted. Part of that was a V10 engine instead of a V12, and when you lock two cylinders off the back end of it, then it's smaller, lighter, and so therefore you can push it further into the chassis, so you've got a better weight distribution. We then, as well, were able to work a little bit with the gearbox and everything else at the back of the car to package it better. We were able to package the particle filters better, the exhausts, the turbos, we worked on those, and all of this together allowed a better distribution of weight and also centre of gravities and everything else. But it also meant that the designers could uh, be a little bit more radical on aerodynamics and the suspension of the car. So we've gained mechanical grip, we've gained stability, we've gained aerodynamic grip, and all in all, we've been, I think, got a more raceable car. We've got a car that you can throw around and you can drive. And that's where the performance comes, not because of uh, power. And I think in the R10, uh, we relied a lot on the power initially. And uh, with the R15, I think we've got a really good little racing car. I mean, how much input did the drivers have? And there was, like nine, it was a lot more, obviously, in the, the Audi family in the design. I mean, was, it ever, was there a discussion open top, closed top? Or was it straight, no, we're staying open? How? Well, that wasn't a discussion that the drivers got involved in. And to be honest, as far as I was aware, it was always going to be open top. Um, what we have are very strong opinions of what we need out of racing. We need more development in this area and that area. And the detail of it, how they achieve it, that's, to be honest, down to the designers and engineers. That's their area of profession, not ours. And uh, it's a bit like, you know, a doctor and a patient. We bring the problem and it's up to the doctor to fix it. And so in that side of things, uh, we were pretty heavily involved in what we wanted, but it was purely down to the design teams to be able to achieve it. And then when we got the car to then say what we felt we needed to try and develop it faster to make it better, to make it exactly what we needed at the end to race. Well, obviously it didn't get too wrong because the first race I hit Sebring. Um, I mean, that's an interesting track to go for with a new car. I mean, it's a bit of a car breaker to begin with. So, I mean, how much running had you done with the 15 prior to Sebring? I did more kilometres in the Sebring race than I did in the weekend than I did in testing prior to it. The biggest thing for us... At towards Sebring wasn't necessarily the number of kilometres we did in testing. It was the fact that most of them had been in cold, rainy conditions. Just because every time we went testing to Hereth or wherever, it would rain and it would be freezing. And then you turn up at Sebring and it's 26 degrees or something and stinking hot. And uh, it, it was the first time we had run the car in hot conditions. And so from that point of view, I think it was uh, really a bit of an eye-opener for us how the car was adaptable because we were into new territory with it and also there was some areas that the 
design guys had to work on and the engineers to try and make sure that driver comfort temperatures and all that sort of thing things that we had never experienced in testing were were okay um and you know we were coming up against our first race situation so it's the first time we were on track with other cars and small things like pick up on the circuit and things like that and so all the time we were developing but you've got to go to a racetrack some point and you've got to race with others at some point and there's no better way to develop a car than get stuck into a race because that's when you find out all your weak areas now I think we all expect the car to be quick out of the box I mean I think in fairness I don't think we all expect the car to be reliable I know Audi are very good at reliability but it's a new car and in the end we end up with a classic race where you know it could have gone either way you guys got the, uh, the drop by 20 seconds or so I mean how was that from a driver's side? You must have. Did you go in there thinking, yes, we're going to get pole, and of course end up going to an Acura? Or did you think you would have to claw back from Persia? I mean, where did you feel you were as you went there? Well, we didn't know where we were because we had tested in private and so had they. The last but, sorry, but did you know, for example, ah, the car after testing is theoretically 1.4 seconds faster than the R10, you see it? Yeah. No, we knew where we were in, in theory, but theory and practice sometimes are different. Thankfully, our simulations are very good. And so we do get a close idea of where we're going to end up prior to turning a wheel. Um, the reliability factor was definitely something that I had personal concern about because it was just an unknown. It wasn't that we had problems so much before, and it was just an unknown. And going to Sebring shakes the hell out of everything in a car and a driver. So, you know, you, you do end up with issues that, and we did in the race, with issues that we had never came across beforehand on a very smooth, cold circuit in the middle of Spain. And so on that side of things, I thought we would be competitive in terms of lap time. Uh, I was hoping that Peugeot hadn't made too many big improvements, but we obviously they had made improvements, so there was no question. A lot of that was strategy and also structure in the team and pits and things. Uh, but we, I knew we'd be there or thereabouts. I was interested to see the Acura, whether they got the front, big front tyre to work, which at that point they clearly didn't. Their car was not very nice to drive by the looks of things, and they were actually slow in the corners as well, which is where they were obviously trying to gain time with a big front tyre. So that, I think that's something that, if you look towards the end of the year, they'll have got a handle on, but in Sebring they were kind of out to lunch when it came to race, and it was down to us in Peugeot. And uh, through the course of the race itself, we saw where we were stronger, we saw where they were stronger, and we ran to our strengths. And at the point where we had to, we were able to pull out the gap we had to, but it was nip and tuck stuff. It really was. It was what it gave was a great grandstand finish, what you, which, all you could ever ask for in, a, in an endurance race. And quite common these days with you two knocking about, well, Audi and Peugeot. That's the good thing about it, is that it is common to for something to go down to the wire. You know, a 12-hour race to be difference of 22 seconds and people to think, crikey, that was a big gap. You know, a 10-hour race at Petit or 9.5 with 6 seconds, 24 hours at Le Mans, the real difference being about a minute and a half, but it is then taken out by Peugeot's decision to go and wets on a dry track at the end, uh, or that throw of the dice, you know. So I would say the last year, most of the races have been decided right at the end is what we're what it's all about you know we're involved this to race and to race hard with good competition and the competition's there and everybody is reveling from it and that's the fans as well as the mechanics as well as the engineers the drivers and the board members as well you know as much as i'm sure they would like a victory that's an easy victory but 
you know, you just need to look at the members of the Volkswagen Audi group board that were standing in our pits at Le Mans last year all the way through the night, never mind towards the end of the race to see it. You know, that just uh, shows that there was a lot of excitement from the bosses up, at, up on top as well as the race teams. So you left Sebring, another victory. You've beaten Peugeot again. You think, oh, this is quite good. A couple of months ago, to Le Mans. And then they changed the rules on you. And suddenly the diesel cars are 30, kilometers, 30 kilograms heavier. I mean, there's a slight change which affects both you and Peugeot with the speed of refueling. I spoke to Peugeot at Spa, because they've had a bit of a practice race, a bit of cheating, I think, obviously. Um, and they said they had to do a completely new 24-hour simulation because of that addition of 30 kilograms. Is it the same for you guys? Yeah, we had to continue our simulations as well for the same thing because... When you add that sort of weight to the car, it's not spread over the whole car. It's not a kilo on the front left, kilo on the front right. It's, it's, you know, it can only be packaged in certain areas. And then it has effects on different parts to it. And uh, you know, it would have been stupid of us. It's, I'm sure it was very financially costly, but it would have been stupid of us to front up at Le Mans without knowing the real effects of what that 30 kilos did to the reliability of the car, never mind the performance. And the performance is not the simulation over one lap, which we can see from our computer. It's uh, from the the whole car and uh, how it runs over the course of time and how it feels for the driver and everything else. I mean, is this something that would have been helped if we still had test day? Because of course, test, well, test weekend being removed. It wouldn't have changed that because a test day, you don't uh, run a 24-hour distance. And so you only run a shortened period of it. And cars don't normally fail after six, seven hours, they usually fail 14, 18, 20 hours or something. And it doesn't matter whether it stops in, you know, five minutes from the end or five minutes from the beginning. If it's still stopped and you don't cross the line first, then it's the same result. So let's talk about the, the new format for Le Mans this, this, uh, this year. Obviously, we've lost test day. We've gained an extra two hours on Wednesday. It's now a six-hour straight-through test before qualifying. How, how do you feel about I mean, Does that really affect things much as far as you're concerned? It does, but it's the same for everybody. And in the environment, yeah, I know some people are not very happy about it. And ideally, I would have preferred to have a test day myself. But if it's the best thing for the whole group of everybody in the pit lane and paddock and security for the rest of the season, then I think it's the right thing to do. Um, With regard to us specifically, I think it probably hampers us a little bit more than, say, Peugeot. Because and Aston to some extent as well, because uh, we've got a new car, and the first time it will turn a wheel is when we've got no chance to do anything to it if it's not right, and that is Le Mans week. And if we had the test day, we had a, a slim chance of changing some things, but uh, we don't have that chance at all. Peugeot's going there with a pretty much a known quantity, um, and we'll have to draw on our experience to make sure that we go there with the right package of what we think we need and to some extent you know we've we've already made that decision there's no question um but i think it is going to be a little bit tighter because it's a bit fresh for us as sebring was fresh we found new things when we got to sebring we'll find new things when we get to le mans we're not a seasoned campaigner with the r15 yet so let's move into the the weekend itself and and there are seven diesels there there's there's three audis there's four Peugeots with the pescarola around the fourth uh, Peugeots uh, oh sorry i forgot the two collars i do apologize there's five well there's three audis and two collars cars um so that's a battle in itself but of course the lmp1 petrol is much more open this time but realistically they're not going to touch diesels are they why well, from the experience we've had at spa and the experience of uh, the aston being ahead of one of our cars last year 
the experience of the Aston leading at Silverstone after three and a half hours, the experience of the change of the regulations of uh, us having a 10% reduction in in restrictor and turbo boost pressure, never mind the 30 kilos and the refueling and everything else that's happened. I, I, I think it's very easy for people to say and point to petrol diesel, but I'll just ask you one simple question um, on this is we were able to go around Sebring with less power and with a new car at the same lap time as we did with the more power and the R10 last year. Where do you think that lap time came from? Because it didn't come down the straights, so it came from the corners. So therefore, I think a lot of our developments in our car and uh, so from in our chassis and aerodynamics. And I don't see uh, with the straight line speed that the Aston had in, because it was the fastest in the speed trap at Spa, and the real facts, not the perception, but the facts of where they were last year and what they've done to develop, why they shouldn't be in the mix of it. That's interesting. So obviously you paid quite a lot of attention to a race you weren't at then at Spa. It's my job. I'm a racing driver. I listen to uh, the commentaries and the opinions and everything else and look at it because ultimately that was our chance to have a look at Aston. It was in Barcelona and then in Spa, and also it was our chance to have some sort of reference to how they would be against Peugeot because there's a big unknown this year because last time we saw Peugeot was in a very different guise at Sebring. Last time they saw us was in a very different guise. Neither of us have really got a real tune on how the Orica is because the aerodynamic package is so new. And the Aston, I think, is... Uh, they're playing a, a cute... You know, we're we're only there to make up the numbers game, which I don't believe because I do not believe you put together a Verstappen, Darren Turner and um, and Anthony Davidson driver lineup with a pro-drive run car on the 50th anniversary of Aston Martin just to be there for fun and entertainment. I have to agree. I think yeah, we, we saw the Sharu's uh, version of the car. Was it fifth overall in qualifying last time? I mean, let's talk about qualifying. Where do you think the qualifying time is going to be this year? Because they've lost the power, but obviously you said a lot of the error has improved. So, and the whole point of the various reductions has been to, to try and pull it back from the huge speeds of last year. I think they, they want to get to 330. We're not going to get to 330. So where do you think you guys are going to be? Well, I think the speed that Peugeot did last year, as I said, was absolutely immoral. It was dreadful. But the cars will be slower. There's no question they'll be slower. Uh, we've made efficiency benefits. And uh, so from that point of view, you can't stop development. There is no way you can stop development because that's one of the principal ideas behind Le Mans is improving development of cars and the future. And efficiency is a hot word right now. And I think that's it can be seen as engine power efficiency and fuel economy efficiency, or it can be seen as car efficiency. And uh, so on that side of things, yes, there's been restrictions, but there's also been improvements. But I don't think those improvements will have such a big benefit as Le Mans as they did at Sebring because the straights are far too long and there's too many of them. One final question on the... uh, We are effectively seeing the end of the GT1 class uh, this year. I mean, is that something you're going to miss or are they just pains in the arse on the track? I think that the GT1 class has run its time to be honest with you yes they're lovely to see they're good to watch and listen and everything else but uh when it's only effectively um you know a couple of cars and in the american Le Mans series only two cars i think the time is done for it and i'm pleased to see that both the main manufacturers involved in it have decided to go into gt racing and to bolster that area up 
even further. And so in that side, I think the names are not lost to sports car racing by any stretch, um, but they've just gone into a different area. Uh, and it's, I would say, made that battle that wee bit more sweet and tasty. Well, as you said, this is maybe, obviously, the only or the final race you do this year. But none of us believe that. Um, given the fact that um, we all seen a different testing and racing calendar. We all, we all just, we all just feel that surely there's going to be some other racing this year. I mean, be it in America, the car, you know, it doesn't make sense to put all this money into a car and then not run it. I know you're not going to tell me yes or no, but I'll tell you the truth. The truth is, right now, there is no discussion about anything post Le Mans. And that is exactly the same as it was back in November when they decided what the, what the racing programme was going to be. The focus is on Le Mans, and uh, the desire, I can tell you, is there from my point of view, from all the drivers' point of view, from the engineers' point of view, from Dr Ulrich's point of view, and even from the board's point of view, to have a racing programme that's much more than Sebring and Le Mans. Uh, however, until we get past Le Mans, then I don't think it'll even creep into anyone's minds. But we would like to do it, and we hope we can do it. And we hope there's more uh, big battles, and I would like to see the Acura again. I would like to see the Peugeot again and continue you know, that head-to-head, um, as well as it would be good to do some LMS. But it's not my decision, and uh, we've just got to wait and see. But we've got a big racing coming up in well, just over a week's time. And uh, I'm certainly not thinking much beyond that. Well, I will all be annoying you over the week, as you know, with the various pit lane team and everyone else. So all the best of luck for uh, well, this year's Le Mans 24. Thank you very much, Nick. Right, we now do the second.